that were in there probably 36, 37 hours, long time. The sun went down and come up again. And uh, it was just a matter of uh, waiting until it was your turn to get killed because the, uh, the dead motor Marines began piling up. They were pretty much everywhere. I'm Jeff Wells, and you're listening to Walk Among Heroes, a podcast dedicated to honoring the brave men and women who allow us to enjoy the greatest privilege in the world, freedom. Each Tuesday, I'll sit down with an incredible military hero. We will listen to unedited, authentic stories in their own voices, in their own words. We will hear incredible military stories from some of the greatest heroes to ever walk the face of this earth. And who knows, we may even learn a few of their secret life lessons along the way. Although none of us can begin to imagine what they've seen, heard, and experienced during our time together, I'll do my very best to take us all for a walk among heroes. Here we go. I'm Jeff Wells, and you're listening to Walk Among Heroes podcast, episode 22C, which is part three of our interview series with Mr. Larry Kirby, United States Marine Corps, Third Division. In the first two parts of our interview series, we focused on Mr. Kirby's training, his childhood, uh, going into the Marine Corps. And then in part two, we focused on his initial combat, uh, specifically on Guam, where he faced just one of the most brutal bonsai attacks in the entire war. And Guam is really where Mr. Kirby first understood the perils uh, and, and the, the magnitude of, of what combat really is. And so we wanted to dedicate an entire episode to Iwo Jima. Uh, we've had several other guests on the podcast. For example, Mr. Harvey, which was episode number one, uh, who fought on Iwo Jima. And every single one of these Marines says the exact same thing. It was some of the most brutal conditions. Uh, the Japanese were hidden in an, in an intricate network of caves and bunkers underground. So we would pummel them through the air with our, our artillery with our air support, and they would just simply go underground, wait it out, and then come back out and attack many times at night. Just an absolutely brutal, brutal uh, situation. And Mr. Kirby explains it best. You know, he talked about Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard's a tiny, tiny little island off the coast of uh, Massachusetts. And he gave the example that if you look at a map of the United States, the island's so tiny that you don't even see it. And if you were to take the island of Iwo Jima and put it on top of Martha's Vineyard, Iwo Jima would fit 11 times uh, into the small island of Martha's Vineyard. So that gives you an idea of how small the island really is. And he says it very clearly, but there's no place on the island where anybody was safe because it was such a tiny island. It was completely within range of artillery from both sides. So for every chaplain, every stretcher bearer, medic, anybody that set foot on that island, their life was in danger. And Mr. Kir Kirby talks about shortly after he landed, he's witnessed the flag raising, you know, the iconic flag raising on Iwo Jima, which, you know, to him at that time, his thought was, oh my gosh, that's a position that's secure that I don't have to worry about somebody shooting at me. So he just, from the moment he set foot on Iwo Jima and, and any and all of the Marines set foot on Iwo Jima, they were in just tremendous combat and the entire battle took 36 days and he goes through it in detail in this episode and i just encourage everybody to listen to this because 
this particular battle is one of the most difficult battles that our nation has faced in our history. And Mr. Kirby does an outstanding job of detailing many of the situations and going through just just how how difficult it was. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Larry Kirby, United States Marine Corps. Uh, your last chapter, uh, which I believe is titled Our Code, uh, I was going to talk about just a few things in there because I think that's that may be one of the best written chapters I've ever read in terms of summarizing how, you know, military um, men, you know, feel about each other and, and what they'll do for one another. So oh, are, yeah, that, that, I appreciate you saying that because, uh, you know, uh, you want to get a message across when you write something and, and you've got the message. So that's good. That's, that's great. Well, you tackled, you tackled some, some topics in there that I think many, certainly folks who have been to combat military folks feel, but very, very difficult to describe and to put into words. And I think you've done it very eloquently and clearly. Uh, in fact, I ordered, I ordered, I ordered a, a bunch of copies of your book uh, just this weekend because I want to, uh, I have several good military friends of mine that I wanted to share it with. And, and uh, rather than pass my copy around to everybody, I figured it'd be easier to to uh, just a couple of them, but so why don't we start? Why don't we start going back to Guam? And I wanted to see. This is one of my probably my favorite stories. Funny, type, you have so many great funny stories too, uh, which, by the way, really complements the the combat stories very well because it shows that you know your people and you you love having fun and those sorts of things. But I wanted to see if you could talk about the Red Cross tent story. I, I just thought that was a, uh, or the Red Cross party, I guess I should say. I thought that was just a wonderful story. You see, the uh, living, the conditions on Guam were always primitive. I mean, we had a comfortable tent and, and uh, a clean place to eat and all that. But, but it seemed as though with the intent of our, uh, our, our commander was to build a, a, a very, uh, a very, a uh, very, uh, very nice, if you will, but officers' mess, and they uh, and they had the local uh, Samoro craftsmen come and build it, and they they uh, they they actually used the uh, the uh, coconut trees, the trunks as a support. It was like a big, overreaching, almost like an igloo, if you can imagine. It was, it was rounded, and it was covered in palm fronds, dried palm fronds, and they hung like shingles all the way down. Okay. Dry as toast, <laughs> and uh, and we were not allowed to uh, associate with any of the uh, natives of, of Guam, the the, uh, the the citizens of Guam. Uh, absolutely no contact at all. I know a couple of the guys uh, looked into hiring some woman from Guam to do their laundry. You know, they thought if they could. Get something and bring a big bag of laundry down and get everything. No, no contact at all. None wow. of that. And it was a good idea to keep. You wanted to keep horny Marines away from young girls, right? That's for right. sure. <laughs> and uh, but they uh, rather, you know, I I could see where we were. You know, it was a good thing to keep us isolated or segregated. But it seems though they were going the 
other way to attract all the uh, Red Cross uh, ladies and the, uh, the nurses from the hospital out of the PD uh, Navy Yard and all that. And what really triggered it was when they, uh, before that, they we, we had the assembly in the in the in the company uh, quadrangle, and the uh, CEO came out and he he told us that Chiang Kai Shek's troops up in China, the, the uh, Chinese were fighting the Japanese and they were losing the battle because they didn't have the weapons, and uh, and they said. He said, "We and I know you guys all have Japanese rifles and pistols, and okay. so what I want you to do is everybody bring out their Japanese weapon that they've that they've acquired, and we're going to send them to Chiang Kai Shek. And you, I know you hate to give them up, but it'll end the war sooner, and you'll be home with your loved ones sooner." So all these guys fell in. And they brought out rifles and pistols and gave them to them. Sent them off to Chiang Kai Shek. We found out about three weeks later. That they all those rifles were right down in the navy yard where they they sold them to navy personnel as souvenirs. Unbelievable. That that needed to be addressed. Yes, that did. That's a bit wow. So we were preparing for this event on Saturday night, and they uh, they had people in the in the uh, in the mess uh, getting getting everything ready, and we could look in and see that they were they had. A, Group of guys that they're bringing in booze to stock the bar. They were just getting anything ready. Then we found out that a Navy band, or, or a, I'm not sure it was a Navy band or, or a but they had arranged for a band to come up to have a dance with the officers and the ladies. Not only in our outfit, but the officers from other outfits were coming over. It's a big, big ball in, in the making. So, uh, Clay Jordan was doing his rounds. He was he had been on EPD, screwed up, and they one of his punishments was to go around and spray all casual water. It had to be done every day. A man would be equipped with a tank of oil on his back and a pump and a wand, and you just spray anywhere you saw water. If there was a pond, you could put a, an ounce of oil on it, would cover it all, kill the mosquitoes. And he had a full tank when he was coming back and he looked up at the officer's mess and the idea hit him. So he sprayed all the way around, got the thing soaked with, with uh, oil, a mixture of gas and oil, I think. <laughs> and and uh, they come back, told us about his plan, and we all agree with him. So we we agreed with about, oh, it was around uh, maybe 1600, four o'clock, I should say, when we... Uh, we're leaving the area. We were, we're allowed to go out. We're going to get down the, the road, down to the Navy Yard, do something. And uh, as we're walking out, he he had a, a glass jar full of gasoline. And he uh, and he had a, we had a reel of primer cord. And he held he held one end at the back of the and uh, back of the uh, officer's mess. And as we walked down, we played out the primer cord about maybe a hundred feet of it and dropped it. He put his end into the jar, secured it so it wouldn't tip over or anything. Then ran out and reached out and lit the other end. And we, while a hundred feet burned, we had time to get out on the road and catch a ride. We were gone. And when we came back, we didn't know whether it worked or not or what had happened or anything. We were kind of anxious to wonder. So when we returned about three or four hours later, we walked in and we looked at the with them at the mess hall and it was gone. It was actually burned 
right to the ground. The the some of the uh, coconut logs of palm trees were they were they were still intact, but they're on the ground. There was no structure. Everything just burned away, and it was just a pile of smoking, smelly heap of garbage on the ground. And it was delightful, and I I regret missing it because the uh, guys told us that. It was an unbelievable fire. It just roared. It was instant. It was over in, in 30 minutes. They said the whole thing just shot up like a flame and just burned out, went right crunch, went right down the ground. <laughs> and and uh, it, it was worth writing about because we it, it kind of satisfied us. We could eat with the brass for, for stealing our weapons, <laughs> our Japanese souvenirs. <laughs> That's funny. And, you know, you, you mentioned in here, I'm going to I'm going to read this quick passage about the Red Cross girls. It says on page 127, you say, like most Marines, I had a rather distasteful opinion of Red Cross women, though they considered themselves volunteer do-gooders. They never spoke to or assisted any enlisted men, at least none I ever met or heard, even heard of. They had officer privileges and every last one of them socialized only with officers. They demanded that the enlisted men come to attention and address them as officers. They treated the enlisted men as lackeys. The Marine officers allowed this to happen. So they have a better chance of getting to the Red Cross volunteers' panties. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I can understand that. But <laughs> it, it was humiliating. You have a, a 22-year-old uh, girl just out of college, and she's a Red Cross worker. Well intended. I'm sure they come over full of ideals and everything. But it's a comfortable life there in Guam. And they had uh, good quarters, and they ate well, and they... And they got a ton of attention from the officers because there are a hell of a lot more officers than were Red Cross ladies. And I could see where it went to their head. They appreciated it. But fine. But we were we were never allowed to go seek help from them, whatever they were doing at the Red Cross. And uh, and also when we spoke to them, we had to come to attention, address them as ma'am. No salute because they were not in the military. But you still had to treat them with great respect. And it, things like that create a sharp division between the officers and listen that. It, it puts us more and more in the, in the, in the classification of peons. Right. You know, and um, it, it just that plus the stealing of the uh, of the appropriating of the of the souvenirs. That that just provoked us to do it. We had just had to do it. That was a, the souvenirs were the last straw. And. You know, yeah. I, I, I've talked to I've talked to veterans from all different conflicts and wars and all different generations. And many veterans have good things to say about the Salvation Army. Uh, not too many veterans have good things to say about the Red Cross, you know, for, yeah. for for whatever reason. And that probably is sort of the root of it. I, I've never heard it explained in, in that manner, but it makes perfect sense because you're out fighting and sacrificing your lives and going through hell and back and then you come back and you've got to um bow down to these folks that aren't even real officers it doesn't matter if they're man or woman male or female they're just not real officers and and, and you're expected. But, it's, it's, but it's a natural uh thing uh, you know if i if i were a uh, a second lieutenant or, or whatever a junior officer and i had a chance to chase one of these good-looking girls i would Make sure that no good looking enlisted man is going to go there. I mean, fine. I just have to be on the other end of the of the, of the dirty stick. <laughs> now I understood what was going on, but it demanded retaliation. 
Right. And you guys, you guys did great. And nobody was ever had any idea what happened. Right. You got away. Well, the thing was, what saved us, even any investigation, in preparing for the dance, whoever was in charge got some Navy electricians from the from the Navy base to come up and rig party lights inside. And the chief of the first class uh, electrician who was in charge of that group, after the fire occurred, he assumed there was one of his guys in the short circuit because what else would set it off? Yeah. So he went to the uh, CEO and said, you know, I'm guilty. One of my guys did. He said uh, it, it was probably one of my guys a short circuit. And I'm sorry it happened. So they everybody just assumed it was the Navy electricians that lit it off. So we really didn't get any flashback from it. And that was great because we knew secretly that. We, <laughs> that, 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 was per- that was perfect timing. <laughs> that electricity oh, was absolutely perfect. That was yeah. absolutely absolutely perfect timing. And I, I suspect that the Navy chief or something who was on our side of this equation, <laughs> looking at these guys having a party, that he probably assumed that one of his guys rightfully shorted out to burn the thing down. <laughs> <laughs> he probably thought, when I get back to the base, going to find out which one of that guy did this. I'm going to bust it down. But <laughs> it got us off the hook. There was no... No investigation, no, no recriminations at all. But the word was passed through the uh, through the outfit that you know, the, the the bad guys did it, so the, the good guys, whatever you want to call it. And after a while, you become known within your uh, battalion, right? If you have a certain skill at doing something, so the guys in the what we call it the plaza tent, the guys in the plaza tent developed a reputation. <laughs> That's it's it's wonderful. And I encourage everybody that's listening to this to, to go in and read, you know, your entire book, because there are so many great stories. And somewhere in here, somewhere in here, uh, Larry, I don't I don't remember the exact chapter page, but somewhere in here, you mentioned kind of what kept you sane and your sense of humor was was one of those things. And you can see it throughout this entire book, how you guys oh, manufactured fun basically. Yeah, well, had to. Uh, we had to counterbalance uh, what we were doing. Uh, and also, there was that feeling of you can do anything you want because there's nothing they can do to punish you. Yeah. <laughs> Worst thing I can do is court-martial you, send you to Portsmouth, and put it to an assault, which is great. It's a nice, warm cell with a comfortable bunk. They only work eight hours a day. That's I know we're trying to get you. <laughs> I think I mentioned that in the book. You did, you did, and and uh, I, I that's very well said, and I, I I can relate to that part as well. Uh, when you're when you're when you're in combat, you you're not really worried about those types of things, and I, I can oh, relate, no. I can relate to many of these stories. I, I just I think it's amazing. So let's let's go ahead uh, and move forward uh, to the invasion of of, of Iwo. I, I was a uh, <clears throat> a scout, a reconnaissance scout. 0321 was my uh, MOS. And we had 100% casualties. Forward observance, 100% casualties. Everybody's killed and wounded. Nobody escapes. And I, I just wanted to put them in there. But uh, but for Iwo Jima, I landed on uh, 
4D plus 4 on the 23rd of uh, February. <clears throat> because uh, the 9th Regiment and the 21st Regiment came ashore. Most of the units came ashore on the 23rd. Some of, the, some of them came ashore on the 24th. Well, we landed about uh, oh, 8.15, maybe 9, somewhere around 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, on uh, we're on, I think, Red Beach 1, which is down close to uh, the foot of Suribachi on the left side. <clears throat> and uh, it was fair. The beach was quiet when we that but uh, the front line had moved well to the north. There was some still some small arms fire. Up on, up on the on the island. Once you get up off, the, they they call the beach a wall because straight up, and then the ground went level after that. And it was thick sand and a tough climb. But uh, there was some small arms fire, so, but not a lot. So we had to stay down on the ground. You couldn't walk around. You'd have to move from place to place quickly. And we it took us probably an hour hour and a half for. Uh, for the, the battalion to get organized, you know, we we bunched, we we landed and and you know scattered, and the platoons had to get together on the companies and and uh, report their positions, get situated, and uh, we were organized about eleven o'clock in the morning, and we were still down on the ground, you know, just lying there. There was some small outfire, but it wasn't heavy. And then somebody yelled over and said, look, we turn around this way, you turn around and look back, and we're looking back at Suribachi. It was maybe, we're at the foot of the first uh, airfield. It was, uh, you know, it, it's a small island. You can see the top of the hill. And we saw figures moving up there and saw a flag go up. And uh, amazing. At that, the only thing that occurred to me at that time was, Oh, that's good. We won't be taking any fire from that hill <laughs> from behind us. That's secure. And all the while, that was the famous flag raising. And I uh, was a witness to history, if you will. That's amazing. And, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Didn't, didn't know at the time that it was important. And it wouldn't have been important, I don't think, if Joe Rosenthal hadn't taken that picture. Right. One of the most yeah. iconic, iconic pictures in the history of, of our nation. Yeah. It's it's just amazing. I, I yeah. that's so I, it's so amazing. You're able to see that moment. Yeah, but then uh, then we uh, we moved up that afternoon. We we moved up uh, carefully up to about the oh we were more than halfway past the first airfield. No no no, it was it was up to the foot of the first airfield. Much I am a number one, and we had to dig in and take positions there. And uh, it took us a while to get organized, but once it organized, we moved into the front lines, and we we, we had set procedures for for proceeding. Our, our lieutenant, Mr. Timmer, he was the second lieutenant in charge of my platoon. He he was directing everything was normal, and we just engaged the enemy from there on. <laughs> we went to war. It's and and you were, I mean, you were in combat just for an un, unbelievable period of time. And I was going to, uh, I was going to ask you uh, about Hank. I know you mentioned Hank in the book and talk, you, you, you refer to Hank and his battle fatigue and, and what he went through. 
And I know that he was a little bit older. And I, you have a, a quote, and this is on page two, 203. Uh, and it says, the story of Hank Gowers back there on Iwo Jima, as well as today, strengthens my belief that war is only for the very young. By the time men reach maturity, they are mentally, socially, and morally unfit for war. They're cynical and lack the purity of idealism. Only the innocent, pure, and unsullied are able to deal with the horror and tragedy of combat. War is accepted more easily by boys who know nothing than by men who believe in nothing. They're as children who know not what they do. And I, 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 that's something that I've believed. I've never seen it stated or read it in such an eloquent yeah. way, but I think Hank and, and what, what you describe in the book and what Hank went through really exemplifies that point. Yeah. He, he was older. He, he me, we're all teenagers and he, he was probably 27, 28 years old at that time. For us, it was a, a generation. And he, uh, he could never, as I wrote in the book, he kept, he used to add a lot of pictures of his wife. He was a screenwriter in Hollywood or something. And his wife was beautiful. And he he knew probably from his experience that when a guy gets out of town for a prolonged period of time, he's got a beautiful wife. The beautiful wife is going to get a lot of attention and things happen. And he, he used to scream and out loud about her screwing everybody. And while well, he's gone and he was just totally rattled by the experience. He was always afraid of dying because it, at night, it, it in, in a campaign like Iwo Jima, the, the small arms fire, the uh, mortars, the man, I don't know, you call it the, the man, the man fighting stops at sundown. But the big guns keep going. The, uh, the, the uh, and uh, Kurabayashi had uh, maybe 75 or 100 long range weapons on that island, and they were camouflaged, couldn't knock them out. And every one of them could be fired from any point on the island to any other point. And they were firing them at random. So, and at night, I can remember Hank lying there wrapped in his poncho. And you could, you could hear the shells go over. And you could hear them uh, explode on, further on. And he stated the obvious. If you don't hear the shell, it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's, already, it's coming in. It's going to kill you. If you can hear it, you're safe. It's gone by. Uh, that that kind of thing, which you know, it's self-evident. But he just rattled on and on, and he just completely cracked up from the not not so not so much from the combat, but because of his circumstances. He was at risk of getting killed at any minute of the day, and his wife was home in Hollywood or California, wherever. And he just couldn't accept the his circumstances and the change. Whereas a, a teenage kid, I remember at 18, I could be transferred from this camp to that camp. 24 hours, 48 hours later, I get the feeling I was born there. You just settle in and that's it. And also... I once had a discussion with uh, Gene D'Angelo, a friend of mine who was uh, a psychiatrist. And I was asking him, uh, I was discussing the fact that the number of uh, PTSD, we call use that expression, PTSD victims from World War II was far less than 
at any time in the in the uh, dealing with the uh, the uh, conflict over the Middle East. And it was my opinion that it was because we were so young, we we're able to accept it and deal with it and come back and live a normal life. With the you know, it, it, we were we we're also very young. It was World War II as a young man's war. When you consider that in in my platoon, the platoon leader was twenty three. He had graduated college. I might have said this before, did I? I don't think so. I don't believe so. He was, and I, I was, I was the platoon sergeant. I was 20. And I was older than every man in the platoon, except the two other men who were 21. So for the, the bulk of us, I mean, there's 50 guys, and uh, only three of them are 21 or older. And uh, I, I think that, Kids can handle the circumstances like that better than an adult because it's more resilient. And the, I, I can't explain why, but just they can. And also, we are more, at that age, you're more idealistic. You, you are willing to accept the, uh, the, the danger because you're fighting for your country or for your mates. And, and you're... You're doing the right thing. You haven't been poisoned at all by bad luck in life or, or any of the things that we're doing. We haven't yet been formed as, as human beings mentally. I, I, I really believe that. And you know, I did some research and I found out, this is quite a while ago, that's somewhere between 250,000 and 400,000 Soldiers in the Civil War were 18 years or under. And there are over 100,000 soldiers in the Civil War who are 15 years or under. So maybe war was meant to be fought by teenagers. <laughs> they, they, seem to be, they seem to be better at us. <laughs> That's, and, and I, many of my, my friends who stayed in uh, the the army or the military have been back and forth and back and forth on these combat deployments over the last you know ridiculous amount of time we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and some of when I deployed some of the fiercest warriors I think would be a good term to describe them absolutely fearless out there every day um, and we were all young at that point we were all in our early twenties or, or younger as you described. And they're out there every day and they're fighting and fighting and fighting. And then now fast forward 10 years or 12 years and they have to go back and they have to go back again. And I've spoken to, to many of these, these guys and they're scared to death. There were no, there was no fear when we were there as, as youngsters, but as you describe, you know, life experiences hit you, you understand in retrospect, really how dangerous those situations were and it's very difficult to to regain that mental yeah. attitude to go back in after that. Yeah, the uh, the teenager just has himself to worry about. He doesn't have a wife or children or anybody. He's he's al- he's alone, pretty much. But anyway, you know that's maybe it's all wet. But I think that uh, teenagers make better soldiers. <laughs> they do. 
they do for many reasons, as you clearly outlined in here. I agree 100 percent. I've just never seen it written so eloquently as you did here. I, I thought that was a really, really interesting uh, point. And I think it was a good one to discuss. Uh, I was going to just describe the conditions on Iwo Jima for those listening, just how I, I think it's for people that have never that don't understand it or certainly like you that have, have been there. Uh, it, it's hard to understand and picture these conditions. And I'm just reading, this is from page 196. Um, and you mentioned here, it was impossible to dig a hole. The ash like soil was so fine that the hole left by the shovel full removed was filled and immediately by more soft ash spilling in to fill the void. It was like trying to dig in water. Thus we had no foxholes and no protective cover other than occasional outcropping of rock igneous material long since cooled and hardened in that calamitous eruption of many years ago. As if attempting to remind us of its ancient heritage, the stench of burning sulfur wafted from holes deep in the island's surface. Steam and hot gases spumed into the air from fissures in the rocks. A few struggling bent and dwarf shrubs managed to survive. Water was precious. Beyond the mist of rain, there was none on the island. And then you go in and describe that each Marine came ashore carrying two full canteens of water. And then you talked about putting salt tablets in the water to ruin the taste, which helped to expand the time yep. frame in which you would have water. Yeah. yeah it was uh, not, a, not a friendly place. And on, uh, on, and, on uh, compared to the jungles, it was like uh, fighting on a pool table. It was just no cover at all. It it was tiny, and 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 you mentioned this is page two hundred one along that same point. You say that this campaign was unique. It was the only battle in the Pacific War, perhaps any war, in which every single person involved—doctors, chaplains, stretcher bearers, truck drivers, support personnel, correspondents—every single person on the island was in constant, imminent danger of being killed. The place was so small. That our, that our artillery and mortars, as well as the enemy artillery and mortars, could hit any given spot on the island at any time. And there were thousands of artillery pieces and mortars in use all the time. Men unloading ships on the beach, medical people treating the wounded in aid stations, stretcher bearers bringing wounded back for evacuation. Some of them were being killed every day and would be forever dead, just as dead as the infantrymen fighting on the front lines. Iwo Jima yeah. brought genuine fear to many who had never comprehended the true definition of the word. If you were on the island, anywhere on the island, you spent every hour dealing with the madness of terror. Yeah. In the Marine Corps, we have the combat action badge, which is like your CIB. And every Marine that stood on Iwo Jima, if he stood one foot from the boat, he was qualified for the combat action badge. That's... And there was uh, there were moves to try to uh, give everybody that was on the island the, some kind of a special medal or something. But that uh, I, I wasn't in favor of that, and luckily it, it never happened because you know I I don't believe in in separating uh, people by their job. I think everybody. Everybody has to be admired who does his job and does it well. Uh, you know, when you were wandering here, but I want to make this point. 
when you enlist or when you go into the military, you raise your right hand and you take a, an oath. I will do whatever I'm asked to do, whatever I'm told to do, obey all, all lawful commands. Absolutely. And I, I admire any, any soldier, any Marine, sailor, whatever, who was in the military, who accepts that and does his job to the best of his ability. I don't care what his job is. Because I look back on my training in the Marine Corps and had not the NCOs that trained me taken their job seriously and did a good job, I wouldn't be here today. I'm alive because of the training I received. So I'm grateful to those people. And uh, oh, maybe five or six years ago, I was invited down to uh, Foxborough, Massachusetts, to speak uh, on a Veterans Day down there at a, in an auditorium. And I had an auditorium full of veterans, all branches, all jobs. And I told them all, that I admired each and every one of them. And I said, I'm one combat veteran who does not differentiate between combat and non-combat. And I've heard too many Marines, soldiers, sailors say, well, I was in action, you were a cook. That, that upsets me greatly because nobody enlists or is, goes into the service and says, I want to be a pilot or I want to be a machine gunner. <laughs> you do what you're told to do. And and uh, if every Marine didn't do his job well, none of us would have succeeded in any of our campaigns because of the training and, and the everything we received. And uh, I, I when I spoke down there, and I always refer, I said the perfect example is the parachute rigger in the paramarines or the uh, 101st, whatever. The men who jump out of planes are risking their lives. But the parachute rigger, who doesn't jump, but he folds those parachutes, if he doesn't do his job well, everybody dies. Now that's, and he's just as important as any one of those jumpers. That's a great point. And I remember when, when I was going through special weapons, one thing about the Marine Corps, after boot camp and after your uh, advanced infantry, you go through special weapons course up at Camp Lejeune, where you, you, you shake hands with every weapon in the inventory just to know what it's like. And we're firing the uh, air-cooled uh, 30 caliber machine gun, the M1919. That's the old World War II one with the holes in the barrel. And uh, maybe, I don't know, three or four or five, I can't remember how many days we spent, but we had learned to set the tripod, load the weapon, I mean, put the weapon in, put the bolt in, feed the ammunition through. You do a little study on muzzle velocity and the usual uh, drill. And I, I couldn't hit the side of a barn with that thing. You know, I, I really had lined up, and then I'd, I'd be off and I'd follow my traces and bring it back down to the black and, and get in there. There was a kid there, <coughs> 18 years old, maybe 19, came from somewhere in the Midwest, and he was born to fire that weapon. Yeah. Get behind anything, you pull the trigger, and you just pour them right in the center of the target. And he was exceptional. Even the instructor said he was exceptional. So when we finished our short course, he said, Wow, when I get down to the honors, I'm going to raise hell with the Japanese by machine gun. 
and the drones and the uh, the NCO said, "You're not going anywhere, pal. You're being promoted from private to corporal, and tomorrow you will begin training men on how to fire this weapon." <laughs> he had the skill, and he was, and hopefully, he was able to transfer it to those who needed to know how to fire this thing. Sure. Now he spent his entire wartime Marine Corps career in North Carolina, but he probably saved 200 lives. There's an important guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. He didn't risk his life, but he suffered the indignity of not being in combat, if you will, if there is such a thing. You know, when he was back home, his friends that were on Guadalcanal or wherever, or the Battle of the Bulge, some, you, you had a soft in North Carolina. He had, he'd have to put up with that, but still he did his job and he did it well. So I, I have great respect and admiration for him. I stand next to him any day and say, we're pals, we're buddies. Well, and, and that's a great perspective. And I, I have, we do some quite a bit of charitable work, you know, with, with, uh, to help military families. And so many people will come up to me and they'll say, well, I've, you know, I, I never had the honor of serving, but I so greatly, you know, appreciate those that do. Therefore, I want to help. And I, I, I tell them, you know, they have, they have this guilty, uh, guilty, you know, they were injured and they couldn't, you know, enlist or, you know, different things like this. And I tell them all the time, I said, look, the good Lord put us all in a certain position and it's his decision where we all ended up. And the most important thing is that we all support each other and support those who are out, you know, doing these things here uh, for our country and for our nation. And by doing what you're doing, you are supporting. Exactly. Our nation and the same, same what you just described, the same exact thing. You know, we, we had when we were deployed, we had a, what they call a rear detachment. And so they, they keep some folks back to handle things at home. You know, really bad things like funeral details and services. And th those are very difficult things dealing with the families who are upset because of this and that and the other thing to me that much harder than, than, than fighting uh, at the end of the day. And, you know, there was a lot of animosity towards those folks because they got to stay home and so on and so forth. And I explained to my soldiers over and over again that that is not easy work. In fact, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without what they're doing back yeah. home because they're taking care of the thing so that we can focus on, you know, our mission. And, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's also something that, that upsets me as well when, when, uh, you know, either one military member is has holding it against another military member or even those who didn't serve, but they're trying to help, you know? Yeah. No, I, 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 that's one thing I learned from my experience was to respect everybody else. You know, I, I didn't work alone. I, I did my best. I, I survived. Good luck for me. But everybody that was involved must be respected. One time I was, I was invited to speak at a reunion. Well, I don't know why I was invited there. A reunion of army personnel who were the people who who drove the amphibious tractors in the amphibious landings, and it was all army. And they they had the uh, the Amtrak, so they were drivers, machine gunners, radio men, whatever. And and they they were they were in the Pacific and and they you know they all made two or three landings went through it 
And I remember after I was, I was chatting with a couple of the veterans, this was probably 20 years ago. Uh, and, and one of them said, uh, you're the first Marine I've ever met who was willing to acknowledge that the Army was in the Pacific. They were, they were part of the 77th Army Division. He acknowledged that we were even in the Pacific. And he said, uh, many times I'd talk to Marines and they'd say, you guys did nothing. We did all the work. Hmm. And I told him, anytime you meet a Marine who doesn't acknowledge that you were in the Pacific, tells you one thing. He wasn't there. Not you. He was not a combat veteran. If he was, he would have great respect for you. Uh, absolutely. And uh, absolutely. It's very well said. And I, I was going to... Um, just to ask you, Larry, this last sort of final attack on, on Iwo and, uh, you know, the battle of Iwo Jima went on, for, I believe, 36 days, uh, long after the flag was raised in, in a very small, oh, yes. very small island, as, as, as we discussed. And the Japanese had this network of tunnels, which you described very eloquently in here and, and and they would basically go in and they would hide when we would pound them with artillery and so on and so forth. And they would come out and they would just continuously play this cat and mouse game and, and making it very difficult for you to move even a foot or a yard uh, because they were just such a difficult and well-defended uh, enemy. And eventually towards the end of uh the, the campaign, or I guess you call it a battle on Iwo Jima, uh, you had one sort of final push, uh, and it was at night, and it was to take what you refer to in this book as uh, Hill 362 Charlie. And that was, it just sounded like a, a very, very difficult plan operation, and ultimately you got stuck in a a kill zone, basically. Yeah. And, yeah, it was called a Christmas pocket. The Battle of Christmas Pocket. Uh, what happened was that um, we we uh, we took casualties from the first day we landed until oh, let's see, the jump off at Christmas Pocket was March seventh, so it's seven about two weeks. We we took a lot of casualties. And it wasn't at any particular time. It's just we had casualties every day. We'd had three or four or five, whatever. And before long, our company of about 225 men, E Company, E called Echo now. We used to call it Easy. It was never Easy. Right. <laughs> but easy Company. We were reduced to about 75 men from the 230. We had men wounded, killed, and whatever. Unbelievable. And uh, Fox Company, our sister company, was also reduced to about 75 men or so. And uh, a depleted company like that has no value uh, as a fighting unit. It has absolutely no value. Because the company, as you know, is made up platoons, uh, squads, fire teams. And no platoon is complete. There are, and no no squad is complete, no fire team because there have been spent. And you just can't meld them all together and say, we'll take uh, a 50 man platoon and reduce it down to two squads. No, because they train together, they work together. 
their efficiency is, is gone. They're really of no value. Right. <clears throat> so the um, headquarters on the island, the, the brass or whatever, well, the people in charge, took our two companies, another company from the Ninth uh, uh, Marines and a company from the 21st Marines, who are all in the same situation, four depleted companies. And word was passed to us to meet up early morning at a particular place. And, and <clears throat> we never had any meetings or, or staff meetings or anything. Word was just passed. The, and we all knew where we were. And then we got the uh, the grid square where this place was we were supposed to meet. And we knew where it was. It was fairly secure. It was a, behind the hill. And it was a place where you could, you could go without fear of being killed. And we we're told to report there the following morning at uh, I think it was 0400 or 0430. I'm not can't remember when. And we were told to get rid of anything that would make a noise. So we carried a weapon, we wore a helmet, carried a weapon, a canteen of water, and uh, ammunition. You know, and that was about all we we're allowed to carry. And we were told to make sure we didn't make a sound. Even little tips like in your canteen, we'd carry a metal canteen with a plastic cap on it that screws down with a chain that connects the uh, cap to the, it's welded to the side of the canteen. And it's wrapped in a, in a, uh, in a canteen cover, which, but a lot of guys would leave that open and that chain would rattle against the side of the canteen and would make a noise. So we told the, Put a sock in there to start, so it wouldn't. And that was that was told to us not to prevent that, but to give us an idea of how quiet they wanted us to be. You, you, you get the whole point. Sure. So at about four or four thirty that morning, whenever it was, shortly after that, we were told to move out, and two companies went sort of a southeast, and two went uh, northwest. If you can imagine. Uh, you know, Hill 332 and 362C is out there. We went around to the right, they went around to the left. And they, the assumption was, uh, uh, at least we didn't know, but we assumed, in any military battle, you must take the high ground. And 362, that's the number of feet above sea level, 362 was C was one of three hills along the same area. And it was assumed that that was an observation facility, because when you realize that the Japanese were all underground, we were on the surface. They had to have an observation point to know where we were so they could direct fire at us. And it was assumed that 362C was an observation tower. They tried to take it out with the with uh, Navy Navy uh, the Navy ships outside, but they couldn't lock in on it because. And they were thinking of using planes to, to drop bombs on it. But the island is so small that when you're trying to hit this hill and Marines are only 200 yards away, you could, that's kind of, that's kind of dangerous. Risky. So we were sent out to out this thing as best we could. And we went around one side, the other two companies went around the other. Now it's pitch dark, so we're moving out. I could hear the man in front of me and follow him. But some guys were touching because he just pitch black. He couldn't say anything. And some guys were just holding on to each other as we followed in the line. 
not a single file, but in groups of single files. And we uh, we have been doing we have been gaining probably 25, 50 yards a day. I consider that a good day. We walked probably oh 250, almost 300 yards in the quiet of the morning. And I, I thought the whole idea was harebrained, but I said, by God, this is working. We're sneaking by them under the cover of darkness. Found out later that that was, uh, that was tried in uh, France in World War I. And some of the officers in the think tank remembered that, so let's give it a wheel. So they did. And I can see why they used our four companies, because we have no value. So sacrifice us. Oh, that's all right. So we we went uh, around our side and we we're proceeding along very nicely, not a sound, moving just as fast as we can walk comfortably. And then a, uh, a, a parachute flare, magnesium flare opened. Somebody, some Japanese sentry heard us or saw us, so they popped a, a flare and they, they lit up the area like high noon. And machine guns opened up, they were... They were annihilating us. So everybody ran for cover, and there was no cover. And off to the right, there was a, not a defilade, it was an area, it would look like an old quarry. And it was below the level of the of the, of the ground. There was a, a little road going down into it, and there were tire prints on it where it had been used. And uh, looking back on it, they were probably quarrying metal from the or stone rather from that uh, quarry to use in the, uh, the bunkers they were building. So we naturally went into it because it was the only protection we had. And of the 150 men we started out with, there were probably 100, 140, 150. So there were probably 100, 110 of us that made it to the to the to this pocket this defilade we get in there and as luck would have it we're right near the ocean on that side of the island and there was a beach a small beach on that side of the island at that point we didn't know it at the time i saw this afterwards and the, what i think is the japanese assumed that we might try a second landing on that beach and they had put uh defensive positions Along that area, they had machine they had machine guns in in the hills and some caves to protect that beach. And as luck would have it, the quarry that we were in was right next to the to the beach and in line of fire. So the machine guns were were firing at us, and the the men that went in there, the hunter men, at first they tried to uh, they tried to naturally form up as squads or as firing as. Uh, fire teams but it the rocks the terrain it just precluded that it became obvious to everybody that was every man for himself just try to stay alive do the best you can and some guys literally dug in found a fairly secure position with some rocker ahead of them and stayed there i opted to fire and keep moving because experience told me that if you're in a fixed position and somebody's a bead on you, if you will, and you stay there, even though you're protected, he will move laterally one direction the other and pick you off from the side. Yeah. That's what I would have done if I went up there. So I, I I just kept moving and firing and moving and firing. And we're in there 
probably 36, 37 hours, long time. The sun went down and come up again. And uh, it was just a matter of uh, waiting until it was your turn to get killed because the, uh, the dead motor Marines began piling up. They were pretty much everywhere. And uh, I, I think being a little guy, five, six, and being undernourished, weighed about 120 pounds, be like trying to shoot a pencil. Maybe that was because the attacks, there were machine guns firing, an occasional mortar, but not a lot of mortar fire, mostly machine guns coming from three different positions. And uh, a mortar, you know, I, I really think that that's probably the reason why I survived. There's a hard target. I'm not sure. But it uh, started out with 100 guys, and within uh, 30 hours, we were reduced to just a, a handful. And uh, it just went on and on. You know, I have no recollection at all of eating, relieving myself, or anything. Just, just, just the endless uh, firing and moving and firing and moving and firing and moving. And there was plenty of ammunition because I carried a Thompson submachine gun, and all I had to do was take the ammo from a dead Marine. There were plenty around there. And uh, I got water from a dead Marine. You know, just survived. Then, uh, oh, I don't know what time of the day it was. This is or in there probably 30 hours, 32 hours. Uh, a tank came in, uh, an M4 Sherman tank. And it looked to me like it was a flamethrower. You know, they have a short barrel on it. Sure. And another tank came in right behind it. The second tank moved out to the center and was the tank commander was looking around. And the other one with the short barrel was aimed up at where the machine guns were. They were firing at us. And I suspect, this is pure conjecture, that the Japanese saw the flamethrower. So they didn't fire at it because if he saw the muzzle fire, all they had to do before our birth, they would have cremated those guys in the tunnels. So they, they didn't fire at the tank. They didn't fire at us. And uh, they probably figured we've killed most of them. There's only a few left alive. Well, the second tank <clears throat> came over to our area, and one track ran up on a rock and lifted a little bit. It was the right track. And the tank commander opened up and said, come in through the hatch. I didn't know it, but there's a hatch in the bottom of an M4 tank. It's an escape hatch in case it catches fire. He opened the hatch. Oh, one of them, before that, <clears throat> a couple of hours before that, uh, <clears throat> I fell. There was an explosion. I fell, and I, I punched a little hole in my back on a sharp piece of rock. I wasn't wounded. I was injured. Yeah. I was bleeding. And uh, a corpsman, his name was Dunn. Bill Dunn or Ed Dunn from Fox Company helped me take my uh, blouse off and he packed my uh, my wound with uh, with loose bandages, put my sleeve back of the thing and buttoned it up for me. Then he apologized. <coughs> he said, I'm sorry I didn't dress that. <coughs> I'm sorry I didn't dress that wound properly, wound properly, but I can only use one hand. I've got a bullet on my left shoulder. 
and he should have gutsy gutsy guy unbelievable so so when we were getting in the tank I remember this this uh, corpsman Bill Dunn helped me pull me into the tank and I don't know like in five or six guys I, I, I don't remember how many of us were all just jammed together but I noticed that the tank where they keep the 75 millimeter ammunition at the aft part of the tank there was none there that was used for, they came in deliberately with an empty tank to take as many as out as they could and we rolled out out of and they took us back down past the airfield down to where we near where we landed where there was a a, a place there a sandbagged uh, area where we would take it in sit down catch our breath they gave us some hot food and some water and only 11 of us seven from from uh, AC Company and four from Fox Company survived. And uh, that was bad. I'm going to, this, this is from page 224 in reference to that hill. Uh, you say here, the cost of taking hill 362C was nearly 600 men killed or wounded. Its eventual capture had removed the last obstacle to a final breakthrough to the northern shoreline. Graves Erskine's plan worked. The price extracted was a terrible cost in the lives of young men, but the end of the battle is near. Two days later, the island is officially declared secured. We observe the combat man's tradition and visit the cemetery before going back to the beach to wait for a ride to an offshore ship bound for Guam. I've never been so tired and worn in my life. I'm grateful that I'm still alive, yet I feel guilty that I'm still alive when so many are dead. I'm so weary, I don't really care anymore if I live or die. My mind, my sense of reason, my total attitude toward life is so melancholy and hollow that I feel I'm losing interest in being part of the human race. This experience has been too frightening and too debilitating. This time it went too far. Yeah, it did. That was, uh, that stayed with me for quite a long time. But uh, that's why I had to go to Bainbridge to get tuned up with the Lieutenant McCafferty down there. Uh, it, it's just, uh, it's hard. It, it, words, words don't work. It's just hard to explain why when you see so many people die, so many young boys killed, and you begin to wonder why. What the hell are we doing here? What's the point? Is it worth it? All those questions. But but thank God that was 76 years ago. <laughs> 76, count them. Well, and, and the good Lord has selected you to tell people about it uh, because without you and your brothers, you know, no, nobody would ever know. And so few people survived anyway. Uh, yeah. It says here on, on this is on page 238. This is in your last chapter. Uh, you say here, for example, I was on the island of Iwo Jima for 36 days, save the last two days after the island was secured. All that time was spent under fire. The combat circumstances of the battle were so severe, so violent and so relentless that all days and all activities bore a certain repetition of brutal similarity. They continued unabated and unchanged for the entire duration of the campaign. I remember some particular instances with surprising clarity, some vaguely, and some not at all. 
Medical, yeah. medical professionals have advised me that the human brain possesses an inherent ability to shut down its memory systems when it reaches emotional overload, its point of critical mass. I do not necessarily subscribe to this theory yet. If I hold a stopwatch on my recollections of Iwo Jima, I can recall events of only 10, perhaps 12 days from a total of 36. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing. I have no memory at all of landing, of leaving the ship, getting in the Higgins boat, and getting to the beach. No memory at all. Interesting. My memory begins when I saw the flag go up. And I remember landing on Guam. I remember every minute of it. But uh, the mind, I, 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 I can't explain. I don't know how it works. I understand. You don't have to I don't know whether I came in on an Amtrak or a Higgins boat or a swammer store. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> you know, I, uh, Larry, I, I had the uh, honor of, of sitting down with uh, Woody Williams not long ago, a few months ago. Yes. And I believe he was in your division. Uh, yeah, he well. was the 21st Marines. We're the ninth, 3rd Division. I met Woody once. Yeah. Different regiments. But he he says the exact same thing. Exactly. And he's also met with psychologists and medical professionals, and they've told him the exact same thing. And I can also attest to that. There's certain parts of our combat that were very clear to the point where sometimes it's hard to sleep because you think about them over and over, but then there's others that are just gone and uh, it's gone. Yeah. I, I think that's the human brain, as you said, reaching a point where it just shuts down. Yeah. I think it overload, overload. So the brain just erased as part of that disc. So it won't break. And that concludes part three of our four part interview series with Mr. Larry Kirby. And again, wanted to dedicate an entire episode to Iwo Jima specifically. And again, we could have talked hours about just this one campaign. It's difficult to call it a battle because it lasted for 36 days, but just the most brutal combat that, that anyone could imagine. And even Mr. Kirby talks about much of the, his time spent on Iwo Jima. He simply can't remember. And sometimes the human body, or at least the doctors and psychologists say that sometimes the human mind will literally, once it reaches an overload state, will literally block out certain points in time. And we saw that with, with Woody Williams, who was also in third division, who also fought on Iwo Jima. And Woody's the only living Medal of Honor recipient still from World War II. And on the day that he, he conducted his actions that ultimately earned him the Medal of Honor, he remembers very little of that. And sometimes these super traumatic events, the human brain and the human mind will just block them out. And Mr. Kirby talks about that on Iwo Jima. And I've several of my uh, soldiers that I served with in combat experienced the same thing. Just a very, very uh, interesting phenomena. And it's a almost like a protective mechanism that the human brain utilizes to protect uh, the human body against these types of stresses and, and things of that nature. Uh, in part four, which will be the conclusion of our interview series with Mr. Kirby, we will go into discussing the last chapter of his book, which is titled Our Code. And in this chapter, which I highly recommend everybody purchase his book, again, it's uh, Stories from the Pacific, 
You can purchase it on Amazon.com. I highly recommend it. It's a very inexpensive book. You can buy the paperback version. I bought several copies I've shared with several of my good friends and, and military buddies. But in that last chapter, if, if the only thing you read, if you don't read anything other than that last chapter, I highly recommend it. And the reason being, he does such an incredible job of summarizing and putting into words these very introspective things that many who served in combat understand, but just simply can't say or don't know how to say. And Mr. Kirby does a, a very articulate job of putting those things into words. And it's just very interesting. And he goes through many different perspectives, conversations he's had with other people. And it's just a very, very powerful chapter. So it's not going to be a long episode. The entire episode will probably be 45 minutes or so. But we just wanted to dedicate some time to that last chapter, read several passages as part of the podcast, and then let Mr. Kirby uh, comment. And it's kind of kind of neat because he wrote this book a long time ago, decades ago. And so by reading some of these passages, it, it brings back, you know, certain memories for him. And it's really interesting to hear his, his commentary and, and his perspective. So that will be part four next episode, uh, 22D. And I want to thank you as always for taking the time to listen to this podcast and taking the time to share it. I get some phenomenal emails from from all of you uh, commenting on the podcast, asking questions, introductions to other veterans who, you know, you think may be a good fit for the podcast, please keep sending that information. Uh, recently, I heard from a couple youngsters, a uh, teenager, 16-year-old uh, teenager who was very interested in World War II, which I always enjoy. And then just uh, the other day, we set up an interview for a fifth grader uh, with a local World War II veteran in San Antonio. And to me, that's makes it all worthwhile because much of the stuff is no longer being taught in our school systems. And so for, for youth to really take an interest in this is, is a big deal to me. So just want to thank you for that. And thank you for sharing it with your kids and your teenagers and, and just spreading the word around. If you want to reach me or send an email, uh, my email address is walkamongheroes at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow our website, www.walkamongheroes.org. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash walk among heroes, Instagram, uh, the at sign walk among heroes. We're on YouTube. Just search for walk among heroes. We so appreciate you following. And I try to post videos periodically on the website. So many of these same interviews that you've seen, a few that you haven't, I like to post videos on there so you can actually see the unedited versions of these interviews. You can see the expressions on the veterans faces as we're talking. And I think there's something powerful uh, in these videos as well. Finally, I want to wish a very, very happy birthday to Mr. KP Platt. Uh, KP was our guest, our last episode guest. Uh, on May 16th, KP turns 100, which is quite an amazing accomplishment. And KP is the uh, last living survivor, last survivor to, to my knowledge anyway, uh, in the Central Texas area. Uh, who survived the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. So I want to wish a huge happy birthday to KP. Finally, if if you want to check out an organization called Wish for Our Heroes, the the website is www.wishforourheroes.org. Wish for Our Heroes assists military families with basic needs, food, shelter, transportation, child needs, medical expenses. Uh, it's a completely volunteer organization. We support it here with Walk Among Heroes if you're interested I encourage you to check out the website. Also, as always, we want to thank those frontline heroes who protect our way of life every single day. The police, firefighters, 
all the folks that were involved in this COVID mess that we've had this past year. Thank you for protecting all of us and protecting our way of life. Finally, we always conclude by thanking the bravest men and women in the world, our United States military, those members of the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Coast Guard, Space Force, every single person that's out there in some very scary, dark places in this world that we don't even know about uh, protecting our freedoms and liberties. And again, they have given us the greatest privilege in the world, which is our freedom. Until next week, let's take a walk among heroes. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon.